Hello, everyone, and welcome to Conversations in Global Health, a podcast led by three students from King's College London, sponsored by Circle U. We seek to bring awareness to the pressing global health issues of today in an accessible manner by engaging in important conversations with field experts offering insights into their fascinating work. We're so glad you could join us for today's episode, What It's Like in the Aftermath, Medical Assistance for Refugees and Migrants. Today's episode is hosted by Jyotika. everyone. My name is Jyotika and I'm going to be your host for this episode. I'm joined today by Dr. Connor Kenny on behalf of Medecins Sans Frontieres, also known as Doctors Without Borders. Thank you so much for joining us today, Dr. Kenny. Thanks for having me. Absolutely. Um, so how about we start off a little bit um, with your background and how you came to MSF? Um, so as you probably gathered from the accent, I'm, I'm actually from the west of Ireland uh, initially, and um, I qualified as a, as a doctor over here in, in the UK about 10 years ago. And um, uh, around after about uh, three or four or five years, um, you know, I was um, I was practicing medicine. Uh, I joined uh, MSF and um, have been with them um, pretty much on and off ever since. Awesome. Um, so let's start off by kind of a brief walkthrough of um, what it's like when you receive a patient and um, the camps that you worked in. And does it differ significantly from how we might find our GP to receive us? Yeah, I mean, there, there, are, there are obviously there are many parallels. Um, uh, you know, uh, here in the UK, you um, try and book an appointment with your GP if you've got kind of an often non-urgent problem. And... Um, uh, you um, get allocated a, a kind of a slot and a time, and you're uh, taking a history, and you have an examination, diagnosis is made, and a management plan formulated. And uh, that's um, the premise, however, of, of primary care of being a GP in the UK is it's all about the continuity of care. So, ideally, I'll, I'll know the, the people who I'm assessing, I might know their, them, their families, and the context in which they're coming from. And I look forward to them following them up over the coming weeks and months, um, and especially if there's any other, yeah, just following them up over the next week, week and months. But when you're assessing people, um, kind of in um, the MSF context, and um, as a kind of um, a primary care doctor, um, it's again the history, examination, and uh, diagnosis and management plan are, are the same, but context in which the person is coming from is completely different and um, because you're working with a very transient population and um, they often will see you for the first and last time and um, at that point of contact and that can be quite frustrating and that has a big impact for both the patient and, and uh, the, the clinician and um, because you know understanding the person as a whole is absolutely crucial um, in delivering kind of non-urgent sort of primary care and um, and not having that is, uh, is, is challenging. Um, and that is a huge difference. Uh, people who are on the move really don't get that um, uh, kind of uh, a holistic assessment that they need. And the experiences that they've come from, uh, if you imagine that, you know, the, the conflict experiences and the stresses and the trauma um, of their lives, and I'm talking about more kind of perhaps uh, Kind of mental health stresses and, and kind of mental health trauma um, are hugely significant to how someone might present in a clinic 
in the youth um, in about a refugee camp. And um, that has a massive bearing in terms of the management plan and follow-up um, that you have with these people. But unfortunately, um, that doesn't always come to fruition because then people can maybe move to the next place. So lots of parallels, but lots of uh, differences as well. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we can't expect it to be completely smooth as we might receive in our ability to um, stay in one place and, and have our own reliable health care. Um, yeah. But having been on multiple deployments with MSF to areas facing conflict, such as Iraq and, and Greece, and I know this is a broad question, but what are some of the biggest challenges facing medics from a purely treatment point of view? I would say um, there are, I guess, many, many challenges with, like implementing a management plan. Uh, I mean, any management plan, um, as a doctor, you always look at kind of the biological side of things, like, you know, the physical health, but also the psychological health and, and the social health. So, I mean, just focusing, first of all, on the, the, the biological management plan, you know, the access to medications. Uh, take, for example, high blood pressure. Um, access to kind of um, uh, basic uh, blood pressure medications can be really, really challenging in the environments. The supply might be very inconsistent, so uh, a person might be given um, one type of drug on one visit, and if they come, if they you know manage to see them again, might have completely changed that drug because we've run out of stock, or you know some, or use kind of a, a combination drug perhaps that would need uh, you know careful monitoring of um, their kidneys and things like that, and we wouldn't have access to to that monitoring. So real kind of practical problems with managing the kind of the biological side of, of someone's um, uh, disease or illness. But also then going back to the holistic side of things as well, um, you know, um, perhaps um, not having that safety net for when a person leaves your clinic that you're not confident that they'll actually return because they will then go on to the next area and having a kind of a safety net and knowing that a person can return to your clinic if they're uh, getting worse or not improving is, is really key. And again, that's, that's uh, often absent in, in your kind of management plan. So um, a lot of challenges, um, and not to mention the kind of social aspect of things and, and the psychological aspect of things, which often drives people people's ill health and um, not having those kind of adequately addressed or not having the psychological support for these people um, can also, you know, has a huge impact on, on the, uh, the actual medical management. Yeah, I mean, there's kind of like this unreliability um, within supply chains and things like that and probably requires a certain amount of resourcefulness for to be able to kind of come up with those treatment plans on the spot, right? It really does. You know, it's, um, it really comes down to an art, um, you know, trying to predict what medications will be available over the next um, four weeks to, to eight weeks and, and uh, kind of incorporating that to your management plan. Um, you know, I am kind of, uh, I find it astounding that like when you go to some parts of the world where the Coca-Cola supply chain, for example, uh, can reach the, uh, the most obscure parts of, of this globe, whereas, you know, access just to basic medication, um, you know, uh, um, is, a, is a real struggle, um, as, as you're probably aware. Yeah, probably super, super frustrating, especially when we feel like medication should be prioritized over some commercial goods, but it never comes yeah. down to funding and, and things like that. Yeah. Um, 
but just to switch kind of along the same lines, but um, understandably, obviously, conflict can cause a lot of mental strife. And as you mentioned, psychological support for, for patients and things like that um, from being relocated from like homes to familiar surroundings and camps and things like that. Um, but I was reading one of your blogs um, and I found the story that you recounted of, of Hamza, the Syrian refugee in the um, Idomeni camp to be particularly shocking and probably presumably, unfortunately, very common. Um, but how have you been able to overcome those cultural barriers that become apparent during mental health treatment, especially when dealing with multiple different cultural groups within um, kind of one setting? I, I believe um, there are a number of ways to kind of deal, deal you know, our, first of all, assess and, and then manage those sort of situations. But I think the key thing is, um, you know, within NSF, we have a, a kind of a fairly strong team to support you in that assessment and management. And, and a huge part of that team is are they, what we call the cultural mediators. They're not necessarily translators, although they do translate language. But they also kind of um, uh, give you context to, to someone and their, their background and, you know, why they're presenting in the clinic today and kind of um, often what's between the, their, their words and their, and their language. Um, and that plays a huge part, I think, in, in understanding that sort of context. Often the cultural mediator is from that area that the person um, who you're seeing is from as well, um, which, uh, you know, obviously give them sort of good cultural context. So I think that's crucial. Um, you know, especially when it comes to mental health, the kind of the cultural and the um, societal uh, impact on um, of mental health is, is hugely significant and uh, it, you know plays a huge part of the assessment and, and any kind of management plan. So I'd say that would definitely be the most critical. And um, taking someone literally for their words um, I think is, is problematic and really only kind of scratches the surface of someone um, who, who's coming to see you. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and how is it with kind of, I know some um, cultures have cultural stigma against mental health treatment and, and things like that. Um, so have you ever probably had to be in that situation where it's like convincing people almost to seek treatment? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and that is a real challenge, um, and often, you know, I'd say more often than not, you're, you're, you're you you know, you, you struggle to kind of convince people or to, um, yeah, re to get that um, of the impact of the kind of the, the mental health and, and their experiences on their, you know, um, illness. For example, you know, um, each presentation of in, in the camps would be headaches, for example. Um, and also we've seen this a lot in search and rescue as well. Just just basic headaches. And um, a lot of these headaches were just the manifest of extremely stressful uh, situations that these people had been through. But to understand the concept of stress or depression or anxiety was, um, you know, is quite alien to some people or if they have heard of it, you know, they're, they're less willing to accept it and um, often the focus might be of the need for like an injection or something to try and cure their their ills when that perhaps wouldn't be the most appropriate treatment you know the ability to you know we've talked to their problems and try to understand you know and be able to articulate the, the experiences that they've had and, and why they have them and, and perhaps try to 
figure out a way of managing their, their stresses and strains would be more appropriate. But that can be kind of sometimes difficult to convince. And um, again, you know, the cha- you know, changing culture and attitudes um, is, uh, is obviously a real challenge. And ultimately up to the person to accept whether they want to, to do that or not. And that's not something that would ever happen overnight. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and how much of the struggle is kind of education as, as much as treatment? You know, the hope is that patients get better, but there's only so much that a doctor can do until um, the rest is kind of up to the patient, especially um, if their health might kind of be the last thing on their mind, right? Yeah, um, I mean, education does, does play a huge part in this. Um, but it's almost the willingness of someone to take on education as well really depends you kind of have to get them at at the right time and trying to educate them about their illness you know speaking to someone's illness that's the reaction and trying to educate them at that stage and generally would not work and it's not just the person you're trying to educate and it's also kind of it would be the community and the you know the, the people around that person as well to kind of almost buy into the concept of um you know that depression is a thing, anxiety is a thing, stress is a thing, and um, it's it's normal to feel these sort of uh, these feelings after the experiences that they they've been through, um, and uh, you know some people are more receptive to others, and like I said, it just depends where they are in their journey um, uh, at that time, and um, so it may not work for me all the time, but it might work then for for someone else who's going to you know. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Um, so kind of shifting gears a little bit to talk about that continuity of care and everything um, that you've been mentioning. Um, as you know, obviously, it's a huge issue for many of these refugees when it comes to having consistency in, in health care when they're moving so frequently and unable to find a more permanent home base. Um, so what do you think is the ideal system for ensuring continu- the continuation of care for migrants and refugees? And um, what do you think are main barriers that prevent us from achieving this ideal? Um, I think, uh, I guess if you look at, um, I mean, picture the example of, of a, a refugee camp um, and from the camps that I've been in. Um, if we just talk about a you know, kind of a generic camp where you have the medical area in the camp, and within that medical area, you might have maybe 15 or 20 different NGOs all providing medical care, but maybe different types. And I think part of the problem is that in some camps that the coordination between the various uh, actors isn't necessarily there. And it means that um, uh, without a coordination and communication between some of the actors means that um, if a person, um, you know, effectively means that the continuity of care is at risk. You, you know, you're not the, the message or consistent message or plan for a patient or for a person is, is not always um, enacted as well as it could. And different NGOs might have different kind of philosophies in which care should be delivered or what care should not be delivered. And that also impacts on kind of um, continuity of care. So I think a huge part of it is um, in kind of the refugee health setting is 
you know, strong leadership, uh, strong coordination between the actors um, to allow sort of continuity of care and consistent management plans to take place. Um, uh, and so, I, I would, yeah, um, that's, that's probably for me the, the, the big part of it. Um, you know, I have seen things mentioned about um, having digital kind of passports or kind of health records to support people on their journey um, um, as they go from uh, location to location. And, um, you know, I think once the kind of ethics and the information governance and all of that, uh, you know, if, once they're addressed appropriately, I think that would make a big difference as well. Um, because we have that technology to, to implement that. So when a person goes from one provider to another, at least they can see. Um, because currently we have these WHO kind of postcards by uh, medical records, which people inevitably are going to lose. So it's impossible for the doctor to see what's been implemented already for that person. So you then restart it and you end their treatment. Um, you don't know what they've had already. and. Um, uh, that, that obviously can be seriously problematic as well. So they're probably the, the main things I'd say about continuity of care. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've heard this kind of notion of a, of a digital passport being discussed before, and um, I think it's a really interesting concept because we do have like so much technology for um, electronic medical records and things like that, but it's I feel like really hard to implement in these kinds of situations just because of that. Um, inability for this technology to reach those areas and all those kinds of things as well. Well, I mean, like we do have, um, you would be surprised, you know, um, uh, in terms of, um, you know, access to to Wi-Fi and internet um, is, you know, it's a huge part of now. It's a part of the globe is 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 now covered, and um, you know, the people in my experience, like even doing, you know, searching it, they may have nothing except for their mobile phone. And, um, you know, we get huge parts uh, to, um, uh, huge parties for people. And um, uh, there's obviously huge barriers to, to, you know, what we've described about electronic health records, um, you know, to kind of support people. But uh, for me, the advantages, um, once, like I say, the information governance side of things um, are addressed, and uh, definitely outweigh the, the risks because um, continuity of care is, is everything and understanding the context of someone, where they are in their journey and uh, their health journey is, 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 is crucial to improve, kind of to allow more optimal health outcomes, especially when it comes to things like high blood pressure and preventing disease like strokes or heart attacks and things because the consequence of that on a person their lives and the, the lives of the family and the people who they're, they're um, that, yeah, the lives of that person and, and the lives of their family is absolutely crucial. And, and again, this is something that we've seen a lot in Iraq because when you have someone um, who has a stroke or some sort of, uh, you know, in some ways a preventable illness, um, um, prevented through um, good primary care, um, they, then they cannot work or function and then they take a member of their family who has to or members of the family has to then support and um, support that person pushing them even further into poverty um, and it has a huge uh, kind of knock-on effect and um, so that's why I'm kind of quite passionate about this and, and you know if the solutions are there to support people at least empower them to kind of avail of those solutions whether they like to use them or not yeah absolutely 
Um, continuity of care is, is definitely something that I think the humanitarian sector is, is working on a little bit more just to make sure that everybody can get the care that they need, not only at the time that they need it, but um, ensuring that their health standard kind of stays all the way through. Um, so just to move on a little bit, um, children are obviously often part of the most vulnerable groups affected by um, conflict. And I know um, how you recounted how you worked in a camp for unaccompanied minors in Lesbos. Um, how did you kind of balance acting as a figure of emotional and social support for these children while also helping them understand the importance of, of treating their physical conditions? So I think um, in, in the absence of me being any sort of trained, you know, psychiatrist or psychologist or, or anything like that, I think fundamentally it's, it's one's ability to, to listen um, to someone and their story and their experiences and their feelings. Um, I think more than anything um, makes a huge difference. And I think um, just being consistent in your presence as well um, makes a big difference. Just um, because unfortunately, especially with unaccompanied minors, is that they see uh, people for maybe one week at a time, and then either they move to the next camp or that person who they see is then gone out of their life. And their only experience, their experiences in life have been about, you know, attachment and, and kind of, um, you know, they uh, often are kind of longing for an attachment and, and support and, you know, having someone go in and out of their lives on a weekly basis who they attach to and then have to unattach from um, can be hugely distressing. So I think just for me, I found that consistency, just being present and being able to listen um, is, is hugely valuable in working with unaccompanied minors as, as, as doctors and trained in any sort of kind of like I said, um, psychiatric or uh, psychological support. Um, and then kind of balancing that as well with, with the kind of the medical um, uh, conditions. I mean, generally with um, what we would have seen in the camps for unaccompanied minors were, you know, quite benign. Um, nothing too kind of uh, majorly concerning, maybe some scrapes and things like that from playing football or cricket or maybe getting into in the odd fight or whatever. Um, so, but often that can be a, a useful time when you're assessing their sort of conditions for like brief inter interventions about so how are you feeling, how is your mood, um, and uh, trying to just uh, um, listen to someone and, and understand uh, they may or may not want to open up at that time, but. I think knowing that someone is actually interested in, in how they are makes a, 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 a difference to them. Yeah. I feel it. Absolutely, especially kind of in the absence of an authority figure and things like that, making sure that somebody who has some level of authority is still thinking about them probably makes a huge difference in just their psychological state at that time as well, probably. Um, so... Moving on to kind of talk a little bit about um, the aid worker portion of things kind of on the flip side. Um, obviously, it takes a super strong willpower to be motivated through it all. And I'm sure it can't be a remotely easy task to carry out. And some days are better than others. But um, what keeps you motivated kind of through everything and, and keeps aid workers doing the important work that they do? Um, I would say probably 
need the, the variety and has a big part um, in terms of your day-to-day -day motivation. Um, and by that I mean um, you're meeting people from completely different uh, cultures to your own um, who uh, describe themselves, their initials and, and their lives in completely different ways to anything you would have ever experienced before. And I find that quite fascinating uh, to work with and um, you know, hugely enriching. Um, so for me, I would say that is a huge part to play and, and probably being such an expert on the boat um, with people from you know, so many different countries, um, from West Africa, Central Africa, East Africa, Southeast Asia, North Africa, and um, all of these people are just being in this confined boat, you know, um, uh, and I, 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 was, I used to find that fascinating from a medical point of view, but also then um, when I wasn't practicing medicine and, you know, you're doing, for example, your, your, your rounds in the ship where you're just making sure that everyone is okay, just from a kind of a safety point of view, and then you, you know, people are given kind of like little kind of uh, musical instruments like drums or um, guitars or whistles or whatever to to, to play and you see this kind of cultural fusion and mix um, when they all get together and not being able to speak the same language but almost being able to speak the language of music and uh, I, I, I mean I cannot imagine a better thing to, to be a part to be witness to ever in any aspect of my life and um, I'd say that is probably um, you know it's a, it's a huge part of it um, I guess of my motivation um, and also I think sometimes with um, uh, you feel that there is a certain responsibility as well to kind of help and support people from, you know, perhaps um, the different poor countries compared to your own. Um, you know, often there is illness or disease as a result, not of the decadence that we have here, perhaps in the, the global north, but perhaps of more basic things like a lack of access to medication. You know, we see the impact of, um, uh, you know, the, the diarrheal illness so many um, toddlers worldwide differently because of a lack of access to basic rehydration products that only cost a few pennies. So I think as well that there is that uh, frustration and, um, and, you know, that would probably, um, you know, support the, the motivation to, to work in these contexts too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and how do you kind of keep yourselves from, from being demoralized, especially when you're kind of at the whims of an ever-changing landscape, not only knowing when governments may shut down camps, but also kind of what the fate of your patients might be once they leave the camp. Yeah, so I think um, after you know, many different setbacks, I think just focusing on controlling what you can control, and so focusing on that uh, that person who's in front of you, and the, I guess that difference that you can make to them or the, the population, um, who you're supporting um, and understanding any differences or any change or, or health support that can be given. I think fundamentally that, that's probably the best way to avoid any sort of the demoralization. Um, and yeah, I think um, under also understanding, like, you know, you're only on um, only tiny part in, in, in this person's life journey in their wheel. Um, a tiny cog in the wheel even and uh, 
I think it's understanding your context and your role is, is kind of key as well. And um, yeah, I guess that's kind of how it comes to, <laughs> to settle in, in, in my own mind. Because yeah, of course you can get very too smart, like, you know, when somebody asks to, you know, those big medications aren't there, or um, you know, serious anxiety about a person who you really needed to come back to the clinic a couple of days later, um, but they've then kind of, um, Yeah, absolutely. Kind of focusing on on the present and not really thinking too deeply about the future and things like that. No, definitely not. It's a huge unknown for for both the the person and and sometimes yourself as well. Yeah, absolutely. Um, And kind of to round things off, how do you think medical aid workers can be better supported in these situations? Obviously, it's just as important that they kind of stay you know, mentally healthy as much as their patient, patients should. Yeah, I mean, that, that is true. And, and they're probably famous for kind of burning out. I, I would say that, um, you know, I mean, the concept of burnout within the, the, the aid industry is um, a huge issue and it is preventable. And I think it can actually, as a consequence, you know, many factors related to leadership within the industry, uh, a culture of um, perhaps, you know, working, you know, 12 hour days, seven days a week, um, you know, almost trying to prove something. Um, and that can be hugely problematic. You know, having burnt out aid workers is awful for the people that they're trying to support and also for the, the, the team who they're working with as well. And, um, and no one benefits from that. Um, and it, it, for me, it just takes um, within the industry is um, a, a major cultural shift um, towards that understanding about personal resilience, you know, where your tolerances are, uh, boundaries, what can and cannot be done. Um, I, I think that's absolutely crucial. Um, and also, I think it's just um, being comfortable with, you know, areas of where you need to support and being able to admit that you need to support as well. I think if you're getting into that industry, knowing that and, and being able to articulate that is crucial and engaging. I find, you know, perhaps going before I go out on deployments um, and actually speaking to either counselling or psychological support before you even go out because you've broken down any boundaries before perhaps any problems that happen um, makes a big difference. And um, it makes, if you need to speak to someone when you get back or during the actual uh, deployment, uh, it makes things so much easier. Um, you're not, you, because the person you're speaking to knows you before a time of crisis. And um, that also um, it gives a good barometer to both you and that person about where you, sh- where you need to be. Um, that's kind of, uh, uh, I hope that makes sense. Yeah, absolutely. Kind of figuring out a little bit about yourself before you, and kind of helping yourself before you can help others kind of mindset. Yeah, it's crucial. It's so key, you know, having that insight um, and, 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 you know, your team having that insight as well. I think it's, you know, to be a good team member as much as anything else. I mean, the whole thing about aid work is, is your ability to, to, 
you know, to work as part of a group, like, you know, to be a good team member. And this is definitely not an individual kind of um, uh, industry. And um, yeah, um, so being able to manage yourself and, and be a good team member is just really, really key. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, thank you for all the work that you've been doing overseas, um, as well as within our local community. Um, and as much as I would love to continue this conversation, <laughs> um, we're out of time for today. But uh, again, thank you so much for giving us your time today. And um, we hope to chat with you soon. Thanks very much. And really appreciate this. I hope you take care. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Conversations in Global Health. We hope it gave you an insight into the world of global health and that it inspired you to become inquisitive about these concepts and issues like it did for us. Be sure to tune in to the next episode, Representation Matters, the Importance of Gender Equity and Conflict Zone Healthcare. Until next time, take care and stay well.